0: This is Whitley Strieber, and this is Dreamland. You've reached the edge of the world. I'm Whitley Strieber, and this is Dreamland. For the next two weeks, we're going to be talking about a book called Origins of the Gods. More than a book, we're going down deep into some very new ideas about what the gods are and were who we are as well. And where we actually came from. We're going to be talking this week to Andrew Collins, one of the authors of the book. Next week, to Greg Little, the other author of the book. Because it's such a huge story. We have got to take two full weeks to tell it. It is extraordinarily exciting. Andrew Collins has been on Dreamland many, many times. So has Greg Little, for that matter. We'll talk about that next week. But Andrew has been on for books like uh, uh, the Cygnus Mystery and his fabulous book about Gobekli Tepe. He's one of the greats when it comes to the archaeological mysteries of this world. His website is andrewcollins.com. You can find out where he's speaking, and he's going to be in the United States, I think, in September. He also takes tours to exotic sites in places like Turkey, places that you would really want to go to if you're deeply interested in this. Little a warning, they sell out often a year in advance because he's real popular. So if you want to get on one of the tours, I would go to andrewcollins.com and do that right now. And now, without further ado, let's go ahead and go on to this week's edition of Dreamland. Origins of the Gods. An extraordinary new book by one of the great collaborations in the whole field of historical and modern interpretations of our lost past and what we mean right now as the human species. We're going to go to Kesem Cave we're going to talk about Skinwalkers with Andrew Collins. Andrew's been on the show many times. He's been at the Skinwalker Ranch. We're going to talk about transdimensional intelligences and what they have to do with the formation of the human mind. And to do that with Andrew and then next week with Greg Little, we're going to start by going all the way back to what amounts to the beginning of human time, long before we even thought in previous years that human beings had anything like shamanism or magic or understood the world at all in any way. And yet they did. And yet they did. Andrew, can you begin telling us this wonderful story of Qasim Cave?
1: Yeah, I mean, the Qasem Cave is in, uh, just outside of Tel Aviv in Israel. Um, it was discovered in the year 2000 um, when they were making a new highway. And the engineering um, company, you know, were breaking through rocks, you know, with explosives. And suddenly they revealed this incredible cave. Uh, which hadn't been open for 200,000 years. And amongst the debris were thousands of stone tools and bones of animals. Um, And it was quite clear that this had been a place of habitation. And it turns out that it originally started to be occupied as early as 420,000 years ago and continued on down to 200,000 years ago. Now, this, in archaeological terms, is what's known as the Lower Paleolithic. And a number of reports had come out to do with the cave, which I was aware of. But in 2019, um, I dropped everything when I read a particular um, you know, news report coming out of there uh, relating supposedly to the discover of the earliest ever evidence of shamanism in the world. And this took the form of a wing bone of a swan, um, which... Is universally used, um, not only in the European um, and Asian continent, but also in the Americas as a method of flight by shamans. In other words, you know, they would, after the bird was dead, they would collect up the bones, particularly of the wings, which were seen as the most powerful and the ones that could achieve shamanic flight and use them as paraphernalia. And here at the Kevin Kezen cave was a, a swan bone that had very deliberately had its um, it, its feathers removed it had very deliberately been cleaned and was actually found in an area of the cave that was considered to almost like be like a holy of holies there were other artefacts in it which seemed to be, back that up and the archaeologists uh, involved there uh, particularly Arambakai um, uh, of the University of Tel Aviv um, wrote a paper and this was reported and because, obviously, we were dealing with swans here. And as most of your uh, viewers will know, that, you know, I've written whole books on the cosmology surrounding the swan as our yes. primary shamanism um, and the cosmological um, point in the sky that enters into the afterlife or the sky world or whatever. You know, I just had to go. So I dropped everything and I went out to uh, Israel. And um I spent a few days with the archaeologists um, looking at the cave, looking over all the artifacts and going over, particularly with Rambakai, exactly what they believed had happened here as much as 400,000 years ago. And, you know, the, the shamanism was there. I mean, this goes back, you know, literally hundreds of thousands of years earlier than we assumed people had shamanism. But beyond that, the people in the Kesem cave were becoming the smartest people in, on the planet at this time. Now, what I mean by that is that they were making inventions that nobody else was doing. I mean, for instance, they had the first canned food in the sense that they would kill deer, chop wow. the leg and wrap it in a certain way that would allow them to keep the, 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 the nutritious um, marrow inside the bone for several weeks. So they could just wrap it up in a particular manner. Throw it in their backpacks or whatever they had, and then go off on their hunts and, and have them. They had the first um, free, freeze fried food um, in the sense that they would be able to, um, you know, cut meat and wrap it in um, ash in a certain way that could preserve it over, over over a particular period of time. They also had the first production line of stone tools known as blades. Um, now. Previous to this time, a few blades had been found in Africa. But this was a complete production line. Plus, they had a school of rock, uh, as was described in the newspapers. What this was is that the cave, different parts of the cave were used to train pupils um, in the methods of um, stone napping and, uh, you know, different types of ones. Um, they were the first people to use fire in a very sustained way within a, a single fire pit across tens if not hundreds of thousands of years and there were many other things like this which although might not seem a lot to to many people you know said that these people were pulling you know advance of their neighbors not not just locally in the levant um you know in the eastern mediterranean but in other parts of the world in a dramatic fashion so the fact that they were also inventing shamanism at the same time where you enter into otherworldly realms to communicate with the otherworldly intelligences that, you know, then give you information that you can bring back into the material existence was just too much of a coincidence. And so I felt that what was happening is that these people were connecting with some kind of higher intelligence or what they perceived of it. I mean, how they saw it is a, a matter of, of, you know, of interpretation, um, and discussion. But Rambakai believes that it would have, they would have seen these otherworldly uh, beings as not just the ancestors of their own tribes, but also probably of the spirits of the animals that had been killed on the, uh, on the hunt. So in other words, it was a little bit like a entering into a sort of jungle book like environment of, you know, Rajar Kipling you know, that all the animals could talk, you know, and t- right. t- talk to the humans. And this is the realm that they believe coexisted with us but was in, normally invisible. And so that they were gaining information that was allowing them to to pull ahead of any of their neighbours. But it wasn't as simple as this because if once you go to Kezan and Cape you'll see that on the horizon, a long way away, is a mountain, an incredibly important mountain in the early um, books of the Bible, particularly the book of Genesis. Yeah, I'd like
0: like to get to that in a few minutes. Okay. Um, But right now, free dreamlanders, I have good news and even more good news. And if you believe that, then watch these commercials very carefully. So what you're saying is that the cave... That what was happening in the cave is reflected the 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 significance of the mountain goes back not just a few thousand years to biblical times or to the to the uh, uh, to the nine to ten thousand years ago that we know that that world was was settled by people who have some kind of a modern vision of reality but much much farther much farther 300,000 years and you're talking about not speculative archaeology this has been dated using the best conventional techniques there are so uh you know i have to ask you who were these people were they even people were they were they neanderthals or homo erectus what were they
1: well, it, what's what's interesting uh, here is that we are actually dealing with our own earliest ancestors, and I mean Homo sapiens, because the Kesem cave people, um, the, the 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 teeth that they left behind inside the cave are essentially no different to those of modern humans, anatomical humans. Um, so they're our ancestors. They were not Denisovans. They were not Neanderthals. They were not Homo erectus. Homo erectus um, had by this time left the Levant. They were in other parts of the world. Um, and it does seem as if the Quesen cave people revered um, the former presence in the area of Homo erectus, but that they were our ancestors. And I think that this is really, really important, that they were the ones that were in, that were inventing shamanism as much as 400,000 years ago. But as I said, on the horizon, there is a mountain, a mountain called Mount Gerizim. And we don't know much about this because, you know, when you think of the Bible and you think of holy mountains, you think of Mount Zion in Jerusalem. But it's a fact that Jerusalem doesn't really make a, an appearance in the Old Testament until much, much later. Not until the time of uh, David and Solomon, of course. And of course, um, you know, they, the, 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 the Hebrew Bible, which was obviously written by the, 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 the Judaic peoples, um, favours Jerusalem and Mount Zion above any other mountain as being important to God. But Mount Gerizim was the original mountain of God. It was the original gateway to heaven, according to the early accounts. And what's so, in, what's so incredible about it is that it was here that the early patriarchs like um, Abraham and Jacob, experienced um you know Yahweh or you know the, the god of the israelites as he simply was back then uh, in the form of manifesting light and in fact it's said that the way that god would appear on mount Gerizim is as his form of the shekinah and the shekinah is a word uh, meaning presence as in the presence of god but usually it refers to a, a blight a, a, you know like a bright blinding light that's seen and considered to be the presence of God himself. And of course, it's this same light that's seen by Moses on Mount Sinai and also on Mount Horeb as a flaming bush. Uh, but also it's the same term is used for the light that appears above the Ark of the Covenant. So we're talk- talking about some kind of manifestation of light. And once I started looking into Mount Gerizim, I found that both historically and in modern times, it's been associated with what we'd call UFOs, UAPs, you know, mysterious lights. And I began to wonder whether the Kezem people may have been interested in this mountain because of these mysterious lights that were appearing, and that they interpreted them in terms of some kind of, you know, localized mountain god. Because ultimately that's what the God of the Israelites was, a mountain God, um, that was based on much earlier Canaanite tradition of gods such as El or Baal, who were said to inhabit the tops of mountains, uh, and in some cases even live in tents apparently upon the tops of mountains. But so I wanted to know more. So I, at the same time as I went out to the Kesem cave, um I also crossed over from Israel into the Palestinian territories of the West Bank um, and climbed Mount Gerizim. And at the top of it, there is a religious community that's been there for thousands of years um, known as the Samaritans. And they claim to be the true inheritors of the Israelite faith. And so I sought out the highest ranking priest I could find. And I said to him, I said, you know, I understand that mysterious lights, um, you know, appear on this mountain. I said, do they still appear today? He said, oh yes, absolutely. Um, and he described them and I said, how, how do you interpret them? And the word that was used was Malach, which is a Semitic term for, um, for angels. So in other words, you know, what we might call UFOs or UFPs today, um, he and his community, the Samaritans, were still seeing them as the manifestations of messengers of God, angels. And I find this quite incredible, you know, that it almost takes us back to, you know, biblical times in the way that they perceive what's going on. But then we look at the Khezem people again, you know, can we dare to suggest that the Khezem people may also have been seeing the same types of light phenomena? Well the one thing that we can say about Mount Gerizim is that it has very intense geology of the salt which has come to be associated with the manifestation of lights and I'm talking about the coming together of tectonic plates underground you know faults um, and fault lines and also particular types of mineral and these seem to be associated with the manifestation of lights and there are um, ways that we can explain this, which we can perhaps go into, but the same conditions would unquestionably have been there 400,000 years ago. And I believe that the Kesin people were being attracted to that mountain because of the light phenomena, because of the objects that were seen. And that because of this, they, they came to believe that the mountain was some kind of entity, um, you know, or a God, as we would call it today. And that they wanted to connect with it, to connect with the intelligence associated with it through altered states of consciousness and shamanism. But the other important factor is that we know that the Kezen people were making journeys from the from the cave all the way to this mountain to actually collect the flint, a particular type of flint, to make their stone tools. And this was despite the fact that that you know good quality flint was available quite close to the cave which they could equally have used so was it possible that they saw the stones the rocks connected with the mountain as imbued with a certain power that would allow them to more easily connect with this entity or deity of the mountain
0: we're going to take another pause right now for our free Dreamlanders. Uh, We'll be right back. I am thinking in terms of, you know, I've, I've been out to, in fact, you mentioned this in the book, to Marfa, Texas when I was a boy. I used to drive out there with, it was a long drive from San Antonio, an ideal thing to do with a girl you liked. And we used to go out to the Marfa Lights and to watch them. And, you know, there were no there's a big viewing area now, but there was nothing like that then. And they weren't car lights or anything like that that they claim now. Uh, I knew a scientist, William Mallow, who said that they were a piezoelectric effect uh, coming out of the ground. And you would see them, but they didn't. They had a almost a lifelike quality to them. and if, Some people, if you called them, they would come closer. And then you'd talk to them, and they'd go back again. They were very was really a very weird thing that sort of seemed explainable, but at the same time kind of didn't. And is that what they were seeing, do you suppose, the same sort of
1: thing? Uh, oh, yeah, almost certainly. But, I mean, obviously, when I think of the Martha lights, I think of, you know, small objects, um, you know, bright, intense lights seen, as you say, either at distance or, you know, close up. But ultimately, we're dealing with objects that you know, the term that that was used there was piezoelectric. Um, And piezoelectricity is definitely a factor, I think, in creating the correct environment for the manifestations of, you know, UAPs, UFOs, mysterious lights down here on Earth. And I'll tell you for why. Um, Because, I mean, it was recognized as early as the 1940s and 50s uh, by you know contactees and early UFO writers such as George Hunt Williamson, that there was some kind of relationship between the manifestation of UFOs and geomagnetic fields. In other words, places on Earth that seem to have a particular n- anomaly connected with magnetism. Now, what's actually going on at such places is that the geology is creating variations in, in magnetic fields. That in itself is not necessarily going to do much more than perhaps have an effect upon the human bodily system, perhaps upon the mind or whatever. It's not going to you know create the manifestation of UFOs. That requires more intense geology. And what I mean by that is that um, back in the late 70s and early 80s, um, researchers like Michael Persinger, the Canadian neuroscientist, um, and also Paul Devereux, who was at the time the editor of a magazine called The Lay Hunter, both worked out that particular types of geology were important and were found again and again in association with the, with the manifestation of lights and UFOs and whatever. And these involved tectonic plates and the movement of them uh, underground fault lines certain minerals in particular like quartz and uh, tourmaline in particular which can when bent produce free electrons in other words the atoms will release their electrons and these will then um, raise out of the ground and create environments which are known as uh, electron bursts or ionospheric environments this is the the scientific term and they are accepted to be able to produce something known as plasma plasma is the false state of matter Um, we obviously know about solid which is the first state liquids which is the second state third state is gases well beyond that is what's known as ionized gas although that's a terrible term because it's not gas at all but what is known as plasma, and plasma essentially is where these electrons break free from atoms and they get so excited that they hit other atoms that release their electrons, which get excited and it's a chain reaction. And as this is happening, they create these electromagnetic fields around them because what they're in doing here is generating electricity. And when these become so excited, they, they release photons tiny packets or particles of light that at a certain point will burst into existence and you know almost like a light bulb being switched on and in front of you will be a object of light um, now this is known as a plasmoid or a plasma construct and I think that there is a very strong relationship between these plasmoids or plasma constructs and the manifestation of most UFOs. And I'm saying most here because most genuine UFO sightings do start with an object of light or a a cluster of lights or whatever. I mean, other things can happen thereafter. Maybe physical structured craft can occur. But, you know, we're dealing initially with the presence of this light. And this light is the byproduct of the presence of plasma. And plasma is incredibly important because not only does it show sentience, and this is something that's been recognized for a long time, but it connects, therefore, with what you said earlier about the Martha Lights, that they themselves would also seem to act in an intelligent manner. In other words, we are dealing with an intelligence that is able to use plasma as a conduit to manifest into our reality
0: it's a very interesting point because you you mentioned in the book uh the church of uh uh st mary uh of st mary in in egypt and yeah. the manifestations that appeared above that church in the 1960s and 70s i know or new he's passed on someone who saw that and he said it was uh it looked like a a figure like shaped like a statue of the Virgin Mary with its arms opened. He saw that with his own eyes. And so what was going on there? Uh, was well, this, in other words, this, what I'm saying is this, this plasma, whatever yeah. this energy is, it seems to be capable of leaving areas yeah. like Marfa and uh, the the mountains, et cetera, and so forth and showing up in other places from time to time. Yeah, yeah
1: absolutely. You know, I mean, Uh, Firstly obviously we're dealing with a phenomenon that's worldwide it's not simply in one country or one location and there are particular places which we've we've described here where these manifestation of objects I mean they're not just lights but they're objects um, will occur on a regular basis now that is probably connected with geology but that's not the only way that they can manifest because obviously they can manifest up in The upper atmosphere within the ionosphere, for instance, which is an ionized environment right for the creation of plasmoids or plasma constructs, which in many ways would explain why a large number of UFOs are seen to actually come down from space because they are being uh, created within the the ionosphere and are, are becoming buoyant and sentient in their own right to the degree that they have this intelligent action they can quite literally act in a manner which we perceive as that which which we want whether we want to see it in terms of you know alien grays coming down or whether we want to see it in terms of the virgin mary putting in an appearance or the fairies of medieval folklore um you know or jesus christ himself manifesting in front of us you know the important key here is not simply the phenomena, but the way it interacts with human consciousness, because it would seem as if some kind of entangled connection uh, can be created very easily between us and that phenomena. You know, I mean, our whole bodily system is made up of electrons. I mean, perhaps 99.9% of everything that that, that is, you know, the, the human body is just a load of electrons doing their own thing, you know, not just within the, the, the nervous system or the brain, but in every part of the body. And those same electrons, those exact same particles are making up these objects. And what is known as quantum entanglement, which is the way that um, subatomic particles, most obviously electrons or photons, can become twinned, interconnected and that no matter how far away they get from each other thereafter, they will still retain an instantaneous connection between themselves is something which creates entangled systems of particles which right. have been known to exist and exert an influence on a microcosmic level for many years. Um, but it's only been recently, within the past, say, 10 years, that we've started to realize that entanglement works on a macro-cosmic level as well. In other words, in the real world. Yeah, so, you in know, the, the idea... In the,
0: in the world where activity takes place.
1: Yeah. But it's yeah, all the real
0: word. world. Yeah. So, in other words... It, Sorry. It, well, uh, it occurs to me that what you may also be talking about is a control mechanism because if this level of entanglement is out there, or in here, I should say, what is to prevent someone from exploiting it who knows, has known about it for thousands of years? And in other words, they may be able to, to control a lot of things about us using this type of Entanglement is a form of communication. You you mentioned Dr. Persinger, whose work I'm very familiar with, and I have a friend who uh, was uh, studied by him for years, because this individual is a uh, is psychokinetic. Now uh, uh, he, he could create states in a person using essentially electro, uh, electromagnetic energy delivered through headsets that he designed uh, to put on their heads. What if someone using quantum entanglement could not just do this at a distance, but from
1: anywhere in this universe? Well, this this is what, you know, Greg and I are saying in in, in this book, that, you know, we could well be dealing with intelligences that are non-terrestrial in the sense that, you know, they are from... The outside, you know, outside of normal space time that are able to manipulate plasma environments um, and perhaps even the environment in general um, to be able to affect human consciousness, particularly when we're in altered states of consciousness, particularly when we're in what might be described as trance states or dream states or indeed um, shamanic states, induced states that they can communicate with us but that the initial connection with this phenomena probably comes by linking with objects like we're talking about associated with Mount Gerizim or Skinwalker Ranch or Martha in Texas or indeed any similar location around the world and let's just before we go any further i think it's important to point out to your viewers here that we're not saying that this explains every ufo or every alien sighting or every alien abduction we're not at all you know I mean as far back as 1963 Carl Sagan wrote a paper in which he concluded that the earth had been visited you know countless times by extraterrestrials across the course of human history Um, and the, the the paper was essentially buried because afterwards he started working with NASA and they basically said look you know uh, look, Carl, you're going to have to drop all this, you know, alien stuff and UFOs because you know, it's going to give NASA a bad name. And he did. I mean, and I've heard this, you know, from somebody who was a very close friend of his. Um, and he had to drop the whole thing to, almost to the point of being negative towards the subject and focus his attention on other areas like writing his book Contact, which is an incredible book, incredible film. Um, and obviously, you know, focusing on things like the Arecibo message and whatever. So if Carl Sagan says that aliens have been here many, many times, I have no problem with that concept. And I think there's a good chance that they're still visiting us today. But I think that there's something else going on, something that may even be bigger than the idea of flesh and blood aliens coming to this planet. Something that's been with us, not just for the past You know, 70, 80 years of the flying saucer era, but thousands, if not millions of years. It's always been with humanity. It's always been there guiding us, connecting with us, feeding us, drip feeding us information when it needs to. Communicating with us through direct encounters uh, like those that may have taken place at Mount Gerizim in connection with the Kesem cave people or indeed the early Israelite patriarchs um or obviously in more modern times with what we'd call UFO encounters. Um, I think that all of these things are essentially the same. I mean, as you know yourself, you know, from your own experiences, many different people that have very close encounters with this phenomena become incredibly creative afterwards. They become artists, they become writers, they become poets, they become musicians. And that this sets them on a new path in life. And I think that the same thing was going on as early as the Kazem people were encountering this phenomena as much as 400,000 years ago. And it's for this reason, not only they invented shamanism, but they also pulled ahead of their neighbours in every way. Free Dreamlanders,
0: we're going to take a break. The good news is it's the last break. The bad news is it's going to be extremely long. I'm kidding. It's it's going to be just like the other breaks. We'll be right back. So you're saying then that this, whatever it is, is it that, well, let me, let me rephrase this. Is it that these people, because of what was essentially a new thing on planet earth, which was their brains, they were different from the Denisovans and uh, the Neanderthals in very many respects. Is it that they noticed and began to try to interpret these phenomena or did the phenomena somehow create them or what exactly was going on there?
1: Well, um, I, I think it's probably a bit of both. I mean, there's probably a case of fascination. I mean, if you are out on your hunt and you suddenly keep seeing these weird lights in the same place, uh, eventually you're going to be inquisitive inquisitive enough to start investigating them. So let's say it's on a mountain. You're going to go to that mountain. You know, you may find that the lights start to play with you, just like you described at Martha in Texas. You may suddenly find that there's a large one very close to you and it's having some kind of effect upon your body, on your mind. It's creating a dreamlike state. Um, it's starting to talk to you you know it's starting to respond to you and you know quite clearly this would be seen as an incredibly profound experience that would be taken back you know to the community and you would describe it and obviously probably some of your colleagues would say oh this is dangerous the others would say well you know what happens next you know go back and try again and there would probably be a certain amount of fear involved. The chances are that they would probably have made offerings to it. You know, these could have been sacrifices of some description. But in return, they believed that they could get some kind of otherworldly knowledge that would advance them. And that this is how this this symbiotic relationship with the phenomena began. But I think that it's something that may have started unconsciously, even earlier than this, because, you know, what I describe in the book is going back two million years into Africa on the Great Rift Valley of places like Tanzania, uh, Kenya, Ethiopia, um, where you have the most intense geology in the world, in the Great Rift. And yet here, not only around 1.75 million years ago, you get the invention of sustained fire, but also The people suddenly start changing the way that they make stone tools from just picking up pebbles and just smashing them and creating something sharp that they can use. That all of a sudden they start creating these most incredible, beautiful stone axes like this, which are known as the Acheulean hand axe. Now these are the earliest form of hand axes created anywhere in the world. And many of them are multifaceted, almost looking like crystals or jewels. And the fact that the make it, the manufacturing of those corresponds with, um, the first, you know, making a fire to me again is too coincidental. And I think this is what happened. I think that when they created those fires inside the caves, they put on all sorts of plants, you know, just simply to keep it burning, but then occasionally they would find themselves drifting into what we would describe as a shifted state of consciousness. And eventually they would realize that it was particular types of plants that were doing this. And they would then purposely put those plants on a fire. And it was at this point that they would enter for the first time these otherworldly environments that they would see as coexisting with us, you know, on an invisible level, but that could be entered not just in altered states but of course in dreams as well and that when this happened communication started occurring and they also started seeing beautiful shapes and colours and crystalline geometric forms and they started to translate these into the creation of these beautiful stone tools that I've just shown you and I think this is exactly what occurred and this was the beginning of the understanding that there coexisted with us this parallel realms that could be entered using altered states of consciousness, and eventually that you could get people, which we now call shamans, to do this on your behalf. In other words, a particular community would have one or more individuals that would be able to enter into these deep states, communicate with these intelligences, and bring that information back. And this was fully realized at places like the Kezem Cave in what is today Israel. But, of course, this is just the beginning. After this, you do have the Denisovans, the, the Neanderthals, and our own Homo sapien ancestors who are all, you know, getting on the bandwagon doing this and communicating with these other worldly intelligences and associating them with the manifestation of what we would today call UFOs at different locations, particularly things like Holy Mountains, or certain places that where this phenomena would occur again and again, not just lights, but also paranormal activity, the appearance of what are today known as cryptids. um, And also that the people would have transformative experiences. In other words, when they went into the area, they'd have visions. They, you know, they would have these states of mind that would change them profoundly. And, you know, there are many places like this around the world. I mean, places like Mount Shasta in California, um, Mount Taishan in uh, um, in China, which I describe in the book, Mount Athos in Greece. Um, all of these places and many, many more are known for the manifestation of mysterious lights on a, on a, uh, a regular basis and have all influenced the religious um, beliefs and practices associated with those particular areas.
0: Now, in the second and third half hour of the show, we're going to revisit uh, that mountain in China and also revisit some other very profound ideas. But right now, uh, where I would like to go is all the way back to the early days and I want to relate this to shamanism as it is now and has been for at least the past 10,000 years and probably longer. You become a shaman by, by experiencing death in one way or another. Uh, I, 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 my experience was that the close encounter experience, which completely overturned my world. It was initiatory. And afterwards, I did end up with strange powers. My wife uh, was one of many shamans that this that the medical community is creating by bringing people back from the dead after they've had uh, a, a, an experience of the afterlife. Uh, and she became a shaman because she was, in effect, initiated by the doctor's who brought her back from the edge of death. Elizabeth Crone, who's been on Dreamland a long, many times, four or five, three or four times, uh, also uh, was a, um, she was struck by lightning, like Danny and Brinkley, and came back completely changed. So this is all leads up to this question. Uh, do we have any evidence that the people of the cave 300,000 years ago or 200,000 years ago were being initiated and if so could that have something to do with the swan wing bones that are found
1: yeah i mean obviously we don't know what was going on there exactly 400 years ago you know i i tried to create um a artist's impression of the interior of the cave showing you know what i called the first shaman with these you know individuals in the background doing some kind of stomp or um, you know, chant at the same time, the shaman having in front of him, um, you, not just, uh, a fire where plants were going on, but also they were using these, these balls, these handheld balls that are multifaceted. Um, they're either made of limestone or there's one in particular, which was also found in the Holy of Holies there, uh, which was made of flint and I think was very special. And these were being used as points of contact for otherworldly experiences and communication with otherworldly entities. And this is not simply me saying this. This was this is what Rambakai, you know, the archaeologist of, of Tel Aviv University, told me that he believed that they were being used for. Well, um, why did that, he why did he believe that? Well, because he was not happy with the the orthodox solution to what they were used for, which was essentially just getting them and bashing them On the bones of animals simply to get out the marrow from them Um, yes you know some people may have just picked one up and used them occasionally for that purpose but he felt very strongly that they were being used as points of contact for otherworldly experiences and what's so interesting about them is that they're the same size as a crystal ball and you know as I put in the book you know it's almost as if these are the earliest crystal balls anywhere in the world, and that they were being used for exactly the same reason as we use them today: communication with otherworldly intelligences to get otherworldly information. You know, whether it be on future events, whether it be on you know uh, new ideas and innovations, or whether it be to spy on somebody or whatever it was. You know, or maybe even to see the animals on the hunt in the past. I mean. You know it would seem as if they were doing exactly the same thing as we are today with crystal balls, and so you know they were clearly focused on this whole idea of otherworldly communication, and this is what the archaeologists do accept out there I mean they're very forward thinking I mean you will not get, for instance, most archaeologists in Britain or Germany or whatever thinking the same way; they just have not got that type of of brain mentality come up with these ideas they shun away from the concept of of ritualistic practices and shamanism that's what i've certainly found in my experience and i'm not trying to put anybody down here i just want to point out that they have that the a there they have, are incredibly forward thinking they have a a
0: culture of that is very very eurocentric and very uh oriented toward the physical world. In other words, they they don't want to see it in, in, in archaeologists are not cultural anthropologists. Let's put it that way. And so they're not the right people to, to deal with that. And unfortunately there's no, there's no such thing as a paleo anthropologist. There, There may be, I don't know, but they certainly don't have a very loud voice. If they are, if they do exist. And I've always thought, that we probably do now at least have enough information to really apply some genuine anthropology to these ancient cultures and uh, reconstruct them more like a cultural anthropologist looking at things like the uh, like the wing bones of the swans and that whole why don't you tell us a little bit about that because you know folks let me explain the swan to you a little bit. The swan is an extraordinary animal. The swan flies beautifully. The swans have been fl- seen flying at 10,000 feet and more. So there was a specific I think reason that these people collected swans. They collected they, they wanted to ascend to fly. Now we go forward to Egypt and we have a whole highly developed culture involving skyboats and attempts to fly back to return to the stars. And if you look at the places like the pyramid text and the pyramid of Eunice, it's a it's a long set of instructions about how the pharaoh should go about returning to the stars. So I want to sort of make a leap ahead, Andrew, and ask you a question about this. Is there a connection, a long-term connection, that goes from the wings of the swans in that cave to the reverence for Cygnus, the the constellation of the swan, that appears in Egyptian mythology?
1: Um, yes, there is, yeah. Um, I mean, obviously, 400,000 years is, is a long time. Um, but the fact is, you have to say to yourself that the sole bird that they seem to have been focusing on other than a little bit of evidence they may have also been interested in in ravens and you know corvoy basically um, is that they chose the swan as a vehicle to cross from the material world into the other world, and what I mean by that is that these shamans would have believed that they had to adopt some kind of um, animalistic form to make that transition. And they chose the swan. Why would they have chosen the swan? Well, a lot of it has to do with how powerful it is, as you said. I mean, it's an incredibly powerful animal, and its flight, you know, with those, those wings would have been seen as having incredible strength to be able to do that, and that that same strength could be used by the shaman to go in an altered state into another world. But in addition to that, they would have seen, as you said, the swans on their journeys um, going to the north um, at the times of, um, of, of you know, the, the summer periods and obviously the winter periods, they would have come south and they would have seen them flying over and they would have known that they are symbols of transition from one place to another. I mean, they would have been very much aware of that. And these same ideas. Would have been carried forward, I think, many, many hundreds of thousands of years. Um, I mean, the, the Neanderthals would eventually adopt the vulture, for instance, and also it would seem probably corvoy, you know, like ravens and crows, as symbols of shamanism. Uh, we don't know so much about the Denisovans yet um, because you know we just haven't got enough material on them. Although there does seem to be some evidence they were into shamanism, but beyond that. Is that eventually you start to get a universal belief that by adopting a form of a bird, now whether it be a swan, whether it be a hulk, as in Egypt, a goose, whether it be a vulture, as in places like southeast Turkey, Gebekli Tepe, and Armenia, uh, whether it be as a bird of paradise in um, in the Pacific, etc., etc., that these could be used to Transition from the material world into the afterlife. And the places of the afterlife were often seen to be in the sky. And in particular, in association with the Milky Way. And there's a place on the Milky Way where it splits into two separate streams. And this is in the vicinity of the stars of the constellation of Cygnus, the celestial bird or celestial swan. And this particular location was universally seen in both the old and the new world as a point of entry into the afterlife and that a journey along the milky way was necessary whether it whether it seems symbolically or otherwise to reach that point where you could make that crossover you could cross that bridge cross that gateway into the otherworldly environment that would be seen in the afterlife. And that's in Egypt. It's in North American cultures. Um, it's in Britain, for instance, in the alignment of many stone circles and other monuments of that type. Um, so, yeah, you know, these ideas that you adopted the form of a bird, um, particularly the swan, has been carried forward for 400,000 years and came to be associated with cosmology, and particular locations in the sky and essentially, you know, the Cygnus constellation, which is otherwise known as the Northern Cross. Um, And, I mean, you know, there's more reasons why Cygnus is important to do with the fact that it was, um, that its stars occupied the pole star, the celestial pole, for many thousands of years, around fifteen, sixteen thousand 16,000 BC. But also there are many stellar objects within it, that could have been important, um, could have affected human consciousness, human evolution like Cygnus X one Cygnus X three um, and you know other objects like the the radio um, object uh, Cygnus I and I mean Michael Persinger, for instance, talked about uh, I think it was Cygnus I and the radio burst coming from that in the 1960s may have influenced things like earthquakes and other kinds of earth movements that occurred around the same time. I mean, he puts this in his key book which came out in nineteen seventy eight called Um Space Time Transients and Other Unusual Phenomena, which is an incredible book. Really, really important book.
0: Yeah, I know um, I've read the book more yeah. than once. It's Yeah, it's, I mean
1: so you know, this idea of Cygnus being important, it is, but it's on many levels. But the interest in its symbol the swan, and of course that's what cygnus mean. it means the swan, goes back all the way to the Keseb K 400,000 years ago. Now,
0: I have to ask the question, why would they choose that particular... I can understand the choice of the bird, although I can think of others like the eagle, uh, for example... Uh, 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 or even the goose, which also flies very beautifully and dramatically, although it's not as beautiful a bird uh, and as uh, eerie in a way as the swan, with its strange voice. Uh, and in Egypt Egyptian mythology, there's very little mention of the swan. Uh It's much more the crane, and which is, uh, of course, the it, it, it figures prominently in many hieroglyphs as well. But did they what is something from well let, let me let me let me rephrase this question, see if I can just get this perfect question out uh, so we have to ask the question: why out of all the constellations, did they
1: pick Cygnus? what was its significance even three hundred thousand years ago? Uh, I don't know is the honest answer. I don't know whether the people of, let's say, you know, the Kesem cave would have been looking up into the sky and thinking, you know, that's a very interesting constellation. They may have been. Um, they certainly would have been aware that it was on the Milky Way. Um, they certainly would have been aware that the Milky Way split, uh, in the vicinity of the Cygnus constellation. And of course, Cygnus means swan, but the chances are that one of the important times that Cygnus becomes significant is when its stars, one after the other, occupy the position of the northern celestial pole. And this means that they become pole stars for a period of a few thousand years. So in other words, you would be able to look at Cygnus as almost like the, the, the nose cone of a giant, um, you know, aircraft propeller going round and around. With the actual propeller itself being the Milky Way, and it would just spin every night, and at least once every night, it would line up exactly north-south and go directly over the head towards the south. And the 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 turning point of that would have been the Cygnus stars, particularly the bright star Deneb, which is you know the main star uh, in the the group. Now. That is one of the reasons. Plus, there are deep objects, deep stellar objects in Cygnus that may also have had an influence, including Cygnus X3. That is one of the only sources out there that may well have been the, 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 the place where cosmic rays uh, have come from and have come directly towards the Earth. What I mean by that is that they're not affected um, by any kind of, um, you know, magnetic fields of the sun or the Earth or the solar system in general, they seem to come directly from source and are able to not just penetrate the atmosphere on Earth, but also penetrate the ground itself, the rock, going down hundreds of yards before finally breaking up. Now, if you can imagine our ancestors being in caves let's say, maybe painting or doing shamanic experiences or something, and would they have been aware of these cosmic particles? Well, the, the actual answer to that is yes, they would, because what we know is that cosmic rays, when they pass through the the, the, the head, particularly the optic nerve, they create flashes of light, what we perceive as flashes of light, and that the you know, these people wouldn't have been able to understand this initially, but I think that eventually they would have worked out that they only occur when Cygnus was in view and that, you know, when it was overhead, they would become even stronger and they would have started to make this connection both with the Milky Way and the stars of Cygnus, to, you know, connecting it with some kind of innovation some kind of effect upon their own evolution, maybe, and they would have started to see in it as a point of creation, and all of this would have come together. I would say, at least a hundred thousand years ago. I think that it probably was fully codified at the time of the last, last Ice Age, possibly about sixteen thousand years ago. Uh, sorry, sixteen thousand BC, when the stars of signals were last seen as uh, pulse stars. Uh, and I think that that these are some of the reasons why cygnus would have been so important. But the swan itself was significant because it was an incredibly powerful bird. It was watched going north and south on its migrations every year, um, and it was seen to be the perfect vehicle for the shaman to be able to utilise um, its paraphernalia, its bones, to make that connection with the spirit of the bird to carry it from this world into the afterlife.
0: Free Dreamlanders, as always, it's a pleasure to have you with us and I'm so sorry to see you go, but uh, goodbye and we will see you next week. Greg Little will be with us to talk about this book again in a completely new way because it's two books really. Uh, uh, Tell us a little bit before we go about what Greg's role in it is, so we can know what we might expect next week.
1: Yeah, Greg's role is more focused on North American um, First Peoples and their beliefs in not just the idea of um, sky beings, you know, beings that were important uh, to their rituals, their beliefs, but what he shows is that communication with these entities, which, you know, John Keel, for instance, referred to as ultra-terrestrials, was absolutely essential for their future destiny, and that they would conduct rituals that would last days, if not weeks, to essentially make sure that their communication with these, um, these intelligences continued. And we're not just talking about mysterious lights, we're talking about, Actual, you know, little people or beings that are yes. being counted by them, and you know, Conjured. different accounts. You know, I them. have, I have had
0: the great privilege of being at a um, a, a Native American, a, a, an extremely private ritual in which such conjuring took, took place. I saw it, and it is real. It's very real. Only, unfortunately, you are. Being an outsider like I am, in fact, everyone involved is absolutely sworn to secrecy. And this is not because it, there's anything to, for us to hide, but because this other presence does not want itself to become pu- part of the public, uh, dialogue, except in ways that it itself directs. And this gets way back To the whole, or way deep to the whole reasons for UFO secrecy and, and, uh, the secrecy that surrounds the close encounter experience, which is a modern manifestation of everything we've been talking about, in my opinion. And it controls this. Now, in the third half hour, we are going to get into just what does that mean? What are those stars? What are the emanations from those stars that made someone like Michael Persinger think that they had an effect here on Earth? And can we work with that in some way? Can we integrate that energy into our own lives? Can we become, can we have the experiences that Native Americans are having on the privacy of their reservations in extremely secret ceremonies. Why can't we Westerners do it too? The answer is we can. Free Dreamlanders, thank you so much for being with us. We've been talking to Andrew Collins, Origins of the Gods, written with Greg Little, Kesem Cave, Skinwalkers, and Contact with Transdimensional Intelligences. Uh, Is there a website we can go to, Andrew?
1: Yes, yeah, Um, andrewcollins.com, as it sounds. Um, Everything is on there, my social media links, um, tours that we're doing to places like uh, Turkey, Egypt, uh, and obviously any events that I've got coming up, basically. I'm in America in uh, September in Colorado, speaking to a Gaia event at Boulder. Uh, If you want to come along, all details online. Um, And... Yeah, that's it, really. Um, Obviously, the research continues. um, And with every book that I write, you know, it's the next piece of the jigsaw, in all honesty. I mean, like you, I just want to try and find the truth. And I think we're getting nearer to some of those facts today.
0: Thank you, Free Dreamlanders. Subscribers we will keep on keeping on. We're talking to Andrew Collins, andrewcollins.com you you know subscribers you you're most of you are very serious about this stuff what about going on going with andrew to one of these places can you tell us a little bit about the tours you've got planned
1: yes um well i'm going to um turkey uh, with my colleague hume newman and his company megalithomania um it's a two-week one um fully booked Uh, we're going back there next may and i think again in september but the important thing about them is that they're research trips they're not just you know holidays to you know do stupid things i mean they they are essential for us to be able to get out to these sites um, be able to see them to be able to do our research and often the people that come along make great discoveries. They see stuff that, that we have not seen before, whether it be new standing stones or carved art or whatever. And in one, of, in one year, um, we went out to southeast Turkey and one of the group was looking at a tiny little bone plaque in a museum. And what his eyes saw that nobody else saw was that you could see that there were T-shaped standing stones on it that were obviously the same as those at Gobekli Tepe, which was just a few miles away. And, you know, we looked and we saw them. I hadn't noticed them. Carved and we them. Yeah, we actually carved on them, you know, in size, wow. actually, this this small bone, bone plaque. And, you know, I mean, th- this was extraordinary. We filmed it and took some great photographs and did a press release when we came back, did various articles and videos, which you can see online. Göbekli Tepe bone plat, the first ever discovery of an artistic representation of a T-shaped pillar and i mean it went the story went viral but, and you know so and that that was discovered by by one of the, one of the you know one of the people on the tour so things like that can happen all the time um, so, you know, they are voyage of discovery for those that come along as well as us, and they are necessary without these tours. I wouldn't be able to go out to these places. Um, it just wouldn't happen.
0: Yeah. So, yeah, go, go on the website and the tours are extremely popular, as you may imagine. So if you want to get on one, that's still empty or still not empty, but still has place, do it right away. Um, uh, yeah. Yeah, because uh th- this is a sp- an incredibly special experience. You won't have it really anywhere else with anyone else. Now, I want to get back. I, we didn't discuss the Ark of the Covenant and the the two mountains, the Mountain of Curses and the Mountain of Blessings. And I was terribly interested in that because in in the Gurdjieff Foundation, we have the idea of the active force, the passive force, and the harmonizing force. And folks, the in this case, the active force would have been the mountain of curses. The passive force would have been the mountain of blessings. And the harmonizing force would have been what was going on with the priests uh, between the two mountains. But set the scene for us. What, was, what would this, the, the tribes would be arrayed on the two mountains and so on. And the Ark of the Covenant was involved. Can you set the scene for us and give yeah. us a little yeah. idea of what was going on? So,
1: sorry. I think to do so, we probably have to go back one to, you know, Moses himself on Mount Sinai, because when he ascended Mount Sinai, he could see this blinding light, this Shekinah, um, or presence of God on the top of it. And so could the other Israelites from the base. So whatever this phenomena was, everybody could see it. And Moses goes up there. He speaks to God, which I think is some kind of communication between us and a plasma environment. And yeah, you know, and the intelligence is associated with it. And not only does God, you know, give him supposedly the, the 10 commandments, tablets of the law, but also he gives them instructions on how he, God can be carried around in a mobile fashion within a box and gives them in instructions on how to make this box. And of course, this box and everything that goes with it, we refer to as the Ark of the Covenant. And once it was made, once it was finished, it was carried about around by the, the Israelites through the, the wilderness, the 40 years in the wilderness. Um, and at night, you know, a manifestation would be seen above it, again, described as the, she- as the Shekinah. And this is very clearly some kind of plasma effect. And you'd say to yourself, well, how does a box create that? Well, we don't know, but it's got something to do with human consciousness interaction. In other words, the belief, the absolute belief of those Israelites that God could manifest above that box in the same way that the visions of the Virgin Mary um, above the, the Zeitung Church took place in the 60s and the 70s. That was occurring because people believed that it was actually taking place. So it continued it, it perpetuated it. But coming back to the Israelites and the Ark of the Covenant, eventually they cross the River Jordan. And the first place that they make for is Mount Gerizim. Mount Gerizim faces towards another mountain called Mount Ebal. And the guy in charge of the Israelites now is Joshua. Moses had already died. And what they do is they set six tribes up on one of the mountains and six tribes up on the slopes of the other mountain. And by the way, they're not that far away. I mean, you could definitely be able to hear, you know, one to the other, because I've been there and stood at the spot between them. And right in the middle, um, at the ancient city of Shechem, which is today the archaeological ruins of Tel Balata, uh, in the uh, Palestinian city of Nablus, um, they set the, the Ark of the Covenant on this altar, and the whole ritual began and it was said that, you know, God then appeared, manifested above the Ark of the Covenant, um, as these curses and blessings took place. And what this means is that six of the tribes cursed on one, one mountain cursed those who would go against the laws of God, whilst the other six on the other mountain, um, you know, praised those that, that upheld you know, the laws of God. This was the curses and the blessings. Um, so this is obviously an incredible ritual, you know, seemingly involving thousands of people. And you'll find various artistic um, representations of it online. I've used at least a couple uh, in Origins of the Gods. And and it's a, and a profound event. It's obviously an incredible event. And I was able to go and stand at the spot where they believe the Ark of the Covenant had actually stood and there's actually a standing stone there um, which was actually uncovered by German archaeologists um, shortly before the Second World War um, archaeologists who I'm pretty certain knew the stories of the Ark of the Covenant and of course you know you immediately start thinking of Indiana Jones and, and the Raiders of the Lost Ark where um, are these stories found I, I go into this in the book
0: where are the stories found they're not in the Bible
1: uh, of of what? Of the curses and the blessings? Yeah, yeah. Oh no, it is. It's there. It is We're in the
0: Bible. In I see.
1: It's in the book of Deuteronomy. Don't ask me to quote the. Uh, yeah, and that's <laughs> an interesting question in and of itself because we we got a
0: we got a fragment that was found later than the Nagamati uh, deposit in the same cave of Deuteronomy. Can you tell us a little bit about the difference between yeah. that fragment yeah. and what well, what is in the Bible?
1: Yes, yeah, I mean, the, the, the Jews believe that, um, there was a schism that occurs between the 12 tribes of, of Israel, that 10 remained, um, in the area of Mount Gerizim and then went their own ways into different areas. And the other two tribes who were Judah and Benjamin went off to create their own Settlement at a place called Shiloh. Um, and here they remained for a while. And then eventually they went to the location we now know to as Jerusalem, which was the home of a peoples known as the Jebusites. And what happened to the Jebusites? I don't know, but the, the, um, you know, the tribe of Judah and Benjamin took over Jerusalem and established this as the new place of God, um, replacing Mount Gerizim. And that's basically their story. Obviously, they then built the, the Temple of Solomon to actually house the Ark of the Covenant. However, the Samaritans, who claim to be the true descendants of those 10 tribes that still remain on Mount Gerizim to this day, um, not all of them, I mean, some of them have gone off into other parts of, uh, of Israel, but you know, the main community is still there on Mount Gerizim. They tell a different story. I mean, basically what they say is that, yes, there was a schism and, yes, there was a priest by the name of Eli who led the tribes of Judah and Benjamin off um, towards eventually Jerusalem. But what happened was that they say that the Ark of the Covenant remained with them and that the tribes of Judah and Benjamin then created their own Ark of the Covenant when they reached Shiloh, in other words, they, 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 they had the same specifications and made their own arc. And that it was that arc that they carried around. So there are in fact two arcs. And I find this incredible. And I go into yeah. this in detail right at the end of the book. It's almost like a, a throwaway chapter because. Right. But it's stuff not, it's in an, an
0: incredible arc. chapter. Listen, yeah, I mean, what the were these in, arcs? I, mean,
1: I won't reveal on screen here. What I finally say about where I believe the, the ark is today, but what I will say is that I think that there is good evidence that there there was two arcs. I mean, they both worked because they they both were the, from the same specifications. But what, quite clear. what did they do?
0: What what would you have seen when the ark of the covenant was working?
1: Well, as I said, in theory, if you've got a box that's made of uh, acacia wood that's covered with gold and has you know this mercy seat with these two cherubim facing each other um, I mean in theory this is not going to do anything is it I mean it doesn't matter what you put inside yes it may have a very slight electromagnetic effect but it's certainly not going to create huge bursts of plasma above it that could then speak to the Israelites as if it was God himself speaking from heaven in theory that's not going to happen so something else must be involved here and I think a lot of it has to do with the belief of the Israelites in what they had. In other words, that the Ark could be a mobile way of carrying their God around, and that the full belief in that, and remember, it wasn't just the Ark of the Covenant, but you also had what was known as the the tabernacle, which was like this incredible tent that was made of all different substances, you know, different types of, of materials that housed the Ark whenever it came to rest. And I mean, in some stories, the art wasn't even supposed to touch the ground because, you know, it would discharge it or something. And of course, there are many accounts of, of individuals, you know, touching it, coming too close to it and being zapped in some way, in a manner which seems otherworldly. But it quite clearly was generating an incredible amount of electromagnetic energy. And this in itself, was associated with plasma plasma is quite clearly what was being manifested yeah. of it and i think that the reason why it worked is because of the belief that the that the israelites had and as i said i would associate it with the appearance of the plasma you know um, virgin marys on the top of that church of Zeitung in cairo back in the 60s and so it's the same thing it's exactly no, the same phenomenon
0: no one was involved in creating those plasmas they, they just came there or was there someone
1: doing it do we know um well i mean look we, we obviously don't know how let's say the Zeitung uh sightings began other than the fact that people started to see mysterious lights on the top of this now from what i understand they had earlier been seen what they you know although it started to become popular in the i think the late 60s and during the 70s i think that it had earlier been seen, but the, the thing is, is it, it, it's like the first people that connect with it. How do they interpret what's going on? If they look at it and say, it is the Virgin Mary and connect with it and say to everybody around them, look, the Virgin Mary is up there. Then you've immediately got this, this symbiotic connection, this, op, this, this observation effect that you are allowing that phenomena to then mould itself into what you believe it to be. And I think that this is something that often happens with UFOs in the modern day, that our minds mould them into exactly what we want them to see. We sculpt them into alien spaceships, flying saucers and whatever. And once again, I have to emphasise that I do believe that extraterrestrials have and probably still are visiting this planet. but. As I pointed out, I believe there's something bigger, something else going on yeah. here, involving plasma, transdimensional intelligences, quantum entanglement, and non-linear causality. In the sense that, on a subatomic level, there is no such thing as time. It just doesn't exist, and that, or if it does exist, it's something that that can be accessed in the past, the present, and the future, all at the same time. And the other important thing about plasma that we've not mentioned up to this point, is that there are various theoretical physicists who believe that it also contains an extra dimension of space. So it has four dimensions of space and one of time. Um, And that, of course, is contra to our existence, where we have three dimensions of space geometry and one of time. So, in other words, plasma becomes a conduit into higher dimensional existences of which they are out there I mean there is unquestionably theories particularly within what's known as M theory which is a form of of string theory a unified form of string theory that talks about the existence of outside of our physical universe of a realm known as the bulk that is 11 dimensional in nature and that our universe blew up within the bulk so it a part of hope, but it has its own laws of physics and that our physical existence may be just one of many different universes or what they call brains or brain worlds existing and that, that right. some of these brains can either touch each other or possibly even overlap with each other on occasions and I think that this overlapping process is very, very important because I think that when that does happen, that plasma can more easily transfer matter from one of these brain worlds into another. In other words, like our own.
0: This plasma you're saying is conscious energy, essentially. Yeah. And I, I wonder whether it, can we say that it we came about and because we noticed it, it, responded to us? In other words, we've we just evolved kind of at random
1: or did it create us? Well, plasma is plasma. Plasma is not intelligent in its own right, but it acts as if it's intelligent and sentient. So where is that coming from? Well, David Bowen, who was a theoretical physicist, uh, American born spent most of his time in the UK, um, did a lot of work with plasma physics in the sixties Wrote books about it, and what he came to believe is that plasma was like a medium, a conduit, into which what he referred to as a proto-intelligence could inhabit, coming up from a deeper level of existence. Now he called that deeper level the excuse me the implicate order. Uh, his colleague Basil Hiley refer to it as the pre-space, which I think is probably a a much better term. And this pre-space is a medium existing outside of normal space-time, probably associated with this realm that I just spoke about called the bulk. And that this pre-space could even be 11-dimensional in nature. And that the doorways, the gateways, the points of access from the pre-space into our physical existence Is via the creation of plasma. Plasma becomes that conduit into which this intelligence manifests. And I'll give you an example here. Um, If you've got a a glove, for instance, a glove can be made of of leather. It can be made of wool or material. And on its own, that's all it is. If, If it's just on on the table in front of you, that's all it ever will be. It will never get up and walk around. But if you put your hand inside a glove and go like this, then that glove is animated. Right. It's I get It's not the glove that's animated, it's what's come into the glove right. that has animated it. And it's the same with plasma. Plasma is that glove. So in other words, the intelligences come from a deeper level of existence. I think it's a multi dimensional environment, which is why we call them transdimensional beings or n-dimensional beings, the n standing for number, because we don't know exactly how many dimensions that we're dealing with. We shorten the term to n beings, and we think that these n beings, you know, are essentially something that's been with us and influencing human, humanity since the beginning.
0: Well, I would like to shift now. I want to go in a few minutes back to those energies Uh, in the Cygnus, from the stars in the Cygnus constellation. But before we go there, I want to talk about the Skinwalker Ranch because you've been there and you've had, you have a very, very remarkable photograph from the Skinwalker Ranch in the book. Uh, Can you tell us a little bit about what happened there?
1: Yeah. Well, I mean, I was invited out there. Um, I will go into all the reasons why, but... I was able to spend a good couple of days there, um, not just getting to know the obvious characters that you see in the television show, but also speaking to various people that worked on the branch and had no real interest in UFOs, in all honesty. And what I found was that many people there had had their own UFO experiences. And I mean, objects, you know, balls of light, you know, traveling quite low or suddenly manifesting directly overhead. Um, many, many different accounts of electrical equipment, you know, malfunctioning, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But what I found is that the main focus of attention was what's known as the northern northern mesa. This is the mesa of sandstone that runs right along the northern edge of the ranch, and every most of the activity seemed to be focused around that. Well, if I was right that a certain type of geology is involved. We should be able to find it here. So I looked and sure enough, there is a fault line that seems to run, that may well run the entire length of that mesa. Um, in addition to that, it's made of sandstone, which is almost pure quartz. And that that quartz comes off of the, 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 the cliffs of the mesa as like this really fine powder to the degree that you have to wear like scarves around your, your your head so that it doesn't get into your throat because it's dangerous stuff um, and, and it also therefore creates this, this fine powdered sand everywhere well sand is a method of producing electricity um, quartz is a method of producing electricity through the stresses and strains of fault lines um, and what this does, as I've mentioned before, creates electrons, creates uh, ionospheric environments that produces plasmas. And the objects is what we've been describing and talking about. But talking to the guys there, what I realized is that I, the phenomena is real at Skinwalker Ranch, but also that they don't see it as a whole load of individual things that are going on. For them, there is one single entity involved with the whole thing. They call it the host, which I find very interesting because the same term is used by a colleague of mine, Paul Sinclair, um, in Yorkshire at a place called Benton, which is being considered to be the British Skinwalker Ranch and the British Bermuda Triangle. The same term is used for this almost omnipotent, omnipresent entity that can see what you're doing, play with you, almost as if you're, you know, ants in an ant's nest. and can give you experiences when it wants to it can appear when it wants to, and it's not a performing monkey. You can't just you know do a skywatch and assume that that you will see it. it will appear when it wants to and this is something that I find is present all around the world at such sites is you're dealing with an entity I like to call it an egregor an egregor means an entity which has taken on its own life, and not just its own life, but a personality based upon human consciousness interaction. So in other words, it reflects the archetypes that we throw into it. And at Skinwalker Ranch, they talk in terms of skinwalkers. So what exactly is a skinwalker? Well, a skinwalker is the form that a Navajo witch, and I use that term lightly, I mean, the better term would be shaman, takes when in an altered state of consciousness in a trance state to journey from one place to another. And most commonly, the form that they take, the animistic form is a wolf. And in fact, the word for wolf and the word for witch in Navajo is essentially identical. I can't remember what it is now. It's in the book, but, um, so, you know, that's what they think is appearing there. Now, when I say they, who is they? And they are the Ute. That's the other tribe of the area around Skinwalker Ranch. And during the the, the 19th century, the Ute and the Navajo had terrible wars between them. Um, and the Ute conquered the Navajo and they actually um, sold some of them off on, in, in as slaves. And they also took over the area of Skinwalker Ranch and, and that part of the Utah Valley uh, which had previous up to that time, from what we can understand, had been some kind of like sacred no man's land. In other words, you were allowed to go in there, you know, build your monuments, do your, your, your rock art, uh, communicate with, uh, you know, your deities or intelligences and then come back out of it. But the Ute took over the area and they started to see or experience these strange things, which they interpreted as skinwalkers. And I think that in some ways there's an element of guilt here because they obviously believe that they'd been put under a curse by, you know, their Navajo neighbours. Now, whether this was right or wrong, I I have no idea. Maybe they did put them under a curse, but that the results of the paranormal phenomena and anything else that they were seeing was the result of the presence of these skinwalkers. In other words, Navajo witches or shamans in their supernatural form. So. That's the background, and this is certainly something that was going on at Skinwalker Ranch for at least uh, let's say 150 years. I mean, arguably, you know, th- there are accounts of UFOs and weird lights being seen there for at least two or three hundred years. But uh, if you look back in the, the the annals of history, but essentially in the modern day, you've got the Sherman family there in the 1990s experiencing the most incredible paranormal phenomena weird lights some of which would seem to be you know quite hostile towards the farmers they obviously had animal mutilations they were seeing these um dog-headed human figures that, that in archaeology are known as lycans um and they were seeing oversized wolves almost like dire wolves which are which died died out at the end of the the last ice age um and these this phenomenon has been continuing. I mean, it continues to this day, not just on Skinwalker Ranch, but on other ranches local to there. Right. I uh, found
0: that out, that the area around Skinwalker Ranch, the whole area is, is like this. The whole area. It just seems to.
1: Now, let me ask you this.
0: There's an extraordinary picture that you took at Skinwalker Ranch in the book. And yes. you, you say in it that you didn't see this thing that's in there. Did you did you make any inquiries about it as to yeah. what it might be? Tell us about that.
1: Well, I mean, look, I had two days there, so I took every opportunity to take as many photographs as I could to make sound recordings, to do video, everything. I mean, just because I wanted to take it back and analyze it. And we got some interesting results. Firstly, uh, we recorded some very low-frequency activity, Um, sound activity up on the Mesa itself in an area where you have these series of rocks, which uh, some believe, and maybe correctly, that it's almost like a stone circle. And, you know, that, that was very strange itself, but has been reported before by the guys that are there. But the other thing was that I was just coming away from supposedly one of the most haunted locations, somewhere called Homestead 2, and I was in a field next to it and I, I panned back to it and took a photograph, a couple of photographs. And in one of the pictures, what appears to be hovering directly over it is this strange bird. Now, when you look at it, it it's definitely got depth. It's got color. It's sharp. It, it, you know, the colors are blue, yellow, white and black. And it has, it seems to have something hanging from its, its breast area which almost looks like a stalk of wheat. Um, and you look at it and you think, what the hell is that? I mean, I didn't see anything at the time. Um, I asked the guys, um, you know, at the Command HQ to actually look at the footage and they couldn't see anything uh, there. And obviously I've shown it to people um, and people have said, well, could it be a bird? Uh, so I contacted the Utah um, you know bird specialists you know and put it on their their uh, facebook page nobody was able to identify it somebody said well could it be a drone there was no drones up at that time um and it's not an insect because it's so sharp and it's it's clearly got depth of distance um so what is it um i mean is it a cryptid i mean the interesting thing is that uh there are reports of exotic birds being seen on skinwalker ranch um that's in uh george knapp's um book um which is which it humped for the sink skinwalker it's mentioned in there so you know is it possible that i did capture something manifesting into our existence and what i felt i mean before i even saw this picture there was it it felt like somewhere and, and in my head i kept thinking i was on the edge of paradise. You know, these are the words that, in other words, anything could happen at any time. And, of course, I got this photograph. And the only time I've ever felt that same feeling was at Martha in Texas, somewhere that we've already talked about um, in this conversation. I went to Texas and I remember standing at the edge of the the desert there, you know, knowing that this is where these lights could appear and feeling this this exactly the same feeling. And of course, obviously, the, the, the commonality between the two places, other than the fact they're extremely hot, is that, you know, you you, you have this sense that anything could happen at any time, and often it does. Yeah,
0: uh, Marfa. a lot of things have happened out there. I don't know if they still do, but they certainly did when I was a kid. And uh, we used to love to go out there. I, I, I only went out a few times because it's quite far from San Antonio. But uh, it's a very interesting place. I always think that these sort of overlooks and the official paraphernalia that go up around these places kind of retards them in a way. But I want to go on now to Cygnus again. And we just touched on this, the various energies coming out of Cygnus X1, X3, Cygnus A. And give us an idea of what Michael Persinger concluded about these energies and what you think about them. I know you've written about them in the uh, in uh, the Cygnus, the Cygnus Mystery. Mystery.
1: Yeah. Well, there's no question that Cygnus X three, for instance, is an incredibly powerful source out there. It's either a neutron star, a black hole, um, and it sends out energies on various different frequencies, X rays radio waves gamma rays and even higher energy um, particles that are interpreted as, as cosmic rays and these cosmic rays uh, as i mentioned earlier can reach the earth and penetrate the ground for you know two or three hundred yards before they will break up um, now obviously if you're deep underground in caves and this is occurring then the chances are that If it goes through the head or through the optic nerves, as we know from astronauts in space, that you will start seeing flashes of light. And I mean, not being funny, but you can do this yourself. If you go, if you put yourself into a completely darkened environment for anything like 45, you know, 60 minutes, you'll start seeing flashes in your eyes. And at least some of those will be cosmic rays passing through your head. But of course, obviously, deep underground, this doesn't happen so often because most cosmic rays are actually um, stopped when they actually reach the Earth. That's even if they pass through the lower atmosphere. Most of them are caught up there. So, you know, the ancients would have been aware, I think, of cosmic rays and the way that they affected them, particularly as eventually they would have come to realise that they, um, they were strengthened, that these experiences would occur in caves. When Cygnus was in view, and that's a fact that the cosmic rays, you know, do get higher when Cygnus is in view. But Michael Persinger, I mean, I wrote all of this in the the Cygnus Mystery, which came out as far back as two thousand and six now. But what I didn't realize at the time, probably because I just didn't think that he would be saying anything about this, was that Michael Persinger, in his extraordinary book that came out in nineteen seventy eight called Space. Time transients and uh, other unusual phenomena. It was co written by Ghislaine Lafrenier, obviously one of his colleagues. Um, it talks specifically about the impact of um, Cygnus X3 um, during the, the, the 60s. It seemed to be producing uh, radio waves, and uh, if, I'm, I'm, if I'm getting all this right now, um, and uh, what he felt. Is that the, uh, that the impact of these rays on earth would be enough to trigger earth movements such as earthquakes and other types of activity like that. And that he also came to believe that it would put pressure on underground rocks and faults so that they produced electromagnetic fields and ionization that would cause Plasma to manifest. Um, And of course, this could be interpreted as we know it will be as UFOs or UAPs, and that it could also have uh, some kind of um, impact on the presence of things like cryptids and stuff like that. So I'm reading this and thinking, oh my God, you know. (laughs) I mean, I managed to uh, write it all up in a revised version of an earlier book I did called The Circle Makers, and this was called The New Circle Makers. I think it came out in about 2012. Um, but it was quite remarkable how Michael Persinger had linked these cosmic objects. I mean, Cygnus X3, I think, is 25, 26,000 light years away. That that and when it bursts into life could have an impact upon, um, you know, the, the, the geophysical exertions of the Earth and how this could produce mysterious phenomena. I thought this was a a very remarkable theory and one which I consider needs more merit and and more attention, I think.
0: You know, he had access to a lot of inside information, uh, UFO-related inside information, and I have to wonder if that isn't something that came from that, that direction. Um, but we, you know, we have reached the, pretty much the end of our time together, but we're in no hurry. Um, do you think that there is some kind of an energy coming from there? And in other words, maybe these people sensed it somehow or knew it because when they came into, they had just come into the Homo sapiens was quite new back then. Is that correct?
1: Or um, no. Uh, yeah i mean cygnus x3 is generally considered to start to have started its you know its time in other words it went supernova and created itself perhaps 100,000 years ago um so of course that would be long after the kezem cave uh, yes had been cut up but that's just an estimate and the thing is is that that's just assuming that cygnus x3 is the only Object out there that could be having an impact upon Earth, and clearly there must be others. Um, although there are only there's only one other object out there that is able to send cosmic rays down here that penetrate the ground in the same way, and that's an object called Hercules X1, which is very close uh, to Cygnus X3, and as far as the, the 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 arc of the sky is concerned. Um but of course there are other things in Cygnus as well. You mentioned them, Cygnus X one, right. um which is another black hole. In fact, obviously this is somewhere that um Stephen Hawking had a particular interest in. He had a bet with one of his colleagues about whether it was or not gonna prove to be a black hole. I think he lost his bet quite obviously. Um and Cygnus A. Um Cygnus A is a incredibly powerful radio source. And these are just objects in sickness. I mean, obviously, there are many other similar deep space objects that could also be having an impact down here. But I think that the greater question, if I may say, is what's the is involved here? I mean, yes, we must be talking about extraterrestrials. But, you know, this is still a nebulous subject. Let's accept that extraterrestrials are visiting the Earth. Let's put that to one side and then also say, well, are we dealing with trans-dimensional intelligences? In other words, energies that are so powerful, so ancient that they've been here all along and they don't need a material form. The only time they take a material form is essentially to please us because, you know, we have to connect with them in some archetypal form, which is exactly what. Carl Jung said in his book called Flying Saucers back in 1959 that this phenomena was real, but that it utilizes archetypes that are of importance only to us. You know, whether it be the Blessed Virgin Mary, a, a spaceman, or as I say, Jesus yeah. Christ or the fairy folk.
0: Well, and he, in Memories, Dreams, Reflections, he theorized that The UFO was a new form of archetype. He was very excited about it, and it's too bad he didn't live to write about it more. Listen, I hate to say it, because this is so fascinating. We've come to the end of our time together, a little more than that, in fact. And there is so much more in Origins of the Gods, folks. Next week, we'll be delving into an entirely different aspect of it with Greg Little, uh, because this is a huge, extraordinary book. <gasps> oh, excuse me. I've got the hiccups of all things. I'm excited about the book. Anyway, you've got to read it. it you got to just get off your duff and get, get, get this thing, because this is really, really special. Um, Andrew's website is andrewcollins.com, and you can go out with Andrew on some of these extraordinary adventures if you hurry, because they sell out long in advance. Andrew Collins, thank you so much for being with us on Dreamland.
1: It's my pleasure, Whitley.
0: You've been listening to Dreamland. Be sure to tune in again next week. Dreamland.